Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can learn more at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Amber Salzman, CEO at Epic Bio. Thanks so much for joining us today, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So Amber, to kick us off, walk us through the arc of your career and what got you to where you are today. So I started my career at GlaxoSmithKline and companies that preceded it. And I really owe a huge debt of gratitude to wonderful, brilliant people who basically taught me how to do drug development, how to deal with the regulatory climate and market access. So I thought I really understood the landscape of drug development. And then naively, about 20 years ago, my oldest nephew was diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative disease, adrenal leukodystrophy, and it was genetic. So we started testing the family and we found my one-year-old son as well as another nephew were positive. And all of a sudden I was thrust into the world of rare disease and realized how different it was and what therapy development was like for rare disease versus what I had grown up helping patients with my whole life. So then I got thrust into that area. I stayed at GSK in a very senior role on the R&D executive team. And my night job was with the foundation and others and many people helping developing the first ex vivo Lenti non-HIV trial for ALD and four boys were rescued with that treatment. While I did that as my night job, I stayed at GSK for another seven years or so. And then thought, you know what, I've been able to do so much just by that need to help patients and drive things forward that I thought, you know what, let me go into biotech, led to me leading a company. It wasn't yet rare disease or gene therapy because I just didn't feel like the funding climate was there. So did a good biotech, wonderful experience. And when we sold the company, that was the time when it was a good time to found a rare disease gene therapy company in that I've been working in that space ever since then. And my career is mostly driven by understanding where there's huge unmet need and where some of these new modalities can really make a difference in terms of helping patients in need. Great, Amber. And a couple of follow-up questions there, just in terms of your background. So given the amount of time that you spent in big pharma in the earlier part of your career, I'm curious, what were some non-obvious learnings that you had when you moved from big pharma to then running your first biotech? And what experience translated well from GSK versus stuff that you needed to pick up that was new to you? So, you know, everyone's different. And a lot of people don't make a successful transition from big pharma to biotech. For me, it was just, for whatever reason, very natural. And I remember the board saying to me, like, you know, it's really different. You're going to have to roll up the sleeves and do stuff yourself. And I said, that's kind of how I like to work anyway. So for me, the getting engaged and really helping at the right time translated. So Amber, I'm curious, when you started in your career and you spent a number of years at Big Pharma, when you first took on your first role as a CEO in a biotech, I'm curious to hear what were some of the perhaps more non-obvious things that you needed to learn that perhaps didn't translate from Big Pharma, if there were any. So interestingly, it's not often that at a senior level, people can make that transition. I mean, and even when I recruit people, you have to look out for it. 
The reason I think for me it was so natural was when I was at GSK, one of the, I think, assets that I leveraged was I really dove in and helped where I could. So I didn't float above the top. I mean, as I say, I'm not a desk jockey. I get involved. And that's what you got to do in a biotech. So no matter what level the person is, you say, okay, what can I do to help you be more effective? So if you're going to a regulatory meeting, I would ask the questions and I would respect the people around me to provide answers. And I also leverage the fact that I said, look, I may be asking a dumb question, but you guys are so experienced that sometimes you just do things because that's how you did it. I don't have that benefit of having done it. And I'm just going to ask and drive and be very conscious of you know being smart with money. So all of those things that I did at GSK, I leveraged where some of the other things I could not. You, know, you also sit on a few boards and have sat on a few boards during your career. I'd love to hear from you as you think about you know, being a CEO versus being a board member, how you think about those different hats and what you think a good board member looks like for a biotech company? That's a great question because I, I am often approached to take board seats and I will only take them if I feel like I can actually be a value because I'm not just sitting, you know, we're all too busy. We want to have an impact. And one of the differences in terms of being a board member versus CEO, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences, but I think where I'm helpful to CEOs is to say, look, I don't want to just show up at quarterly meetings and opine. Where I can be helpful is when you're thinking through strategy or you're hitting a challenge and you just need a sounding board and have somebody just help and react, that's where I can help. So when we talk about even the crisis of trying to find the right people or the funding environment now and being creative about how the company may want to look at transactions, partnering a lead asset or whatever it may be, just because I've had to deal with that myself and am always dealing with it myself as a CEO, I feel like I can be helpful to the CEO as a board member. So while I do obviously participate quite a bit on the quarterly meetings, I think it's the in-between conversations where I can help and just be somebody that's supportive. I mean, as we all know, it's it's lonely being a CEO because you've got to support the team underneath you. You got to deliver for all of your bosses, all your shareholders, and it can be lonely. So I I feel that as a board member, I can be a supportive, helpful person, and not just you know another demanding. Although obviously, I still keep my high standards. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up about the lonely road for a CEO. And the importance of being able to have sounding board in a structured, but also safe environment with your board. I think the word safe is important. And and there's a few things where I'll talk to a CEO and say, look, you know, let's get on the phone before the board meeting, because I don't want to throw the questions. It's just, there's no reason for me to throw it in front of the whole board. So I pair them in advance and say, you know, I think it would be helpful if you address X, Y, Z. I'm happy to help you. There's experts in that space, but, you know, just given the environment, you should be prepared to address that. There's no reason for me to throw that at a board meeting. Yeah. And Amber, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but I'd love to hear how you think about balancing pursuing interesting technology. And there's certainly an abundance of ideas and interesting tech out there and how you make the decision about what tech is worth pursuing and just your own mental model about those sort of decisions. It's a very challenging question because I am attracted to leading platform companies. And part of the reason is because you can just apply it to the myriad of unmet need. And unfortunately, there is still a lot of unmet need. 
On the other hand, if you can't validate that platform rapidly, it becomes a little too esoteric for me. For other people, maybe. So one of the challenges I have in my company now is while we have a tremendously powerful platform, do we keep building it or do we just, you know, all in application? And, and you know, we're balancing both right now. And I think that's why we got into the clinic so quickly. We're moving into the clinic so quickly. So it can't just be exciting technology. It's got to be used and used rapidly. And I mean, it's the patients waiting on us. So it, it's got to be used quickly for me to feel excited about it. Yeah, great. So let's talk about Epic Bio and what got you excited about Epic Bio and, and the work that you're pursuing there. Yeah. So having been in gene therapy for, I'm going to say about 20 years, while it is an incredibly exciting modality and opened up the doors in so many ways, having been in the space role, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the limitations. So being aware of limitations, somebody said, you've got to talk to Stanley Chi and Epic Bio. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go to the West Coast. And they said, no, 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 you really have to talk to them. And I felt like I was doing someone a favor. Meanwhile, it was one of the best conversations I had. And that's because Stanley is a scientific founder of Epic. You know, he's a co-inventor of CRISPR. But what he did was figure out how to leverage the programmability of CRISPR to bind to the right place that needs to be corrected in terms of what genes do. But what he did was take it to the next level and say, you know what, we don't really want to have to cut the DNA in order to fix the problem. Let's just correct what the genes do. So we'll use the CRISPR strength to go to the right place and bind, but then we'll activate the gene, we'll suppress the gene, we'll turn it on, we'll turn it off or anything in between. And if you can have that machinery to so rapidly go after any target and tell it whether it should shut down, overexpress, or anything in the middle. I mean, that's that opens up the door to everything. So that was really one of the reasons that drew me in. But but as I said earlier, it can't just be technology. So while all of a sudden I could in my mind think about the diseases, you know, I've been a rare disease quite some time. And I've taken a lot of calls from patient advocates who've said, you know what, you moved ALD forward. How can you help me with my disease? And I read up about the disease and I'm like, oh. I don't know technology that'll get that. So I'm thinking about all these diseases and it's like, wow, now we've got the technology, let's do it. But I think what also pulled me into this company had a lot to do with the leadership and culture that existed. So while there's brilliant innovation and intellectual curiosity, there's an unbelievable humility. And you may think, oh, well, then that might be a fun place to work. It is fun. But in terms of what that means from uh, being able to get things done, I don't think people have a full appreciation. When you're brilliant and humble, that means you don't think you know everything. So you're open to hear what other people have to say. So I joined when they've had already done an amazing recruitment job of the leadership team. And while they all come with different backgrounds, they're really intellectually curious, want to learn from each other, but they're humble. And because they're humble to the core, they really can hear what each other's saying. And that's how in record time, we're filing an ID next year. No other platform company like that could do it, and especially in epigenetics. So I think it was a combination of this technology that opens the door and what's limiting us is our understanding of disease and the people that could help make that happen. Hmm. That's really interesting and, and quite remarkable speed given when the company launched. I'm curious, as you think about filing an IND and specifically indication selection and going back to the previous point that we talked about unmet need, if you have a framework that you historically use for indication selection, if you'd be willing to share what that looks like. Yeah. In this case, because our technology is so novel, we first laid on top of it the framework of 
we have to go after a disease where the biology is well validated. So if we went in and we suppressed a gene expressing or we activated its expression, it's already validated that if we could succeed at that, we had a good chance of helping a patient. So one was that biology was validated. The second part was in terms of what cells need to be corrected, is there already clinical experience being able to get our cassette to that cell type? Now, one of the big advantages that Stanley's work brought to the table, and you know, he published a paper last summer on it, was that the Cas9 molecule, Cas12, the early ones are pretty big. And that is why the early CRISPR companies were mostly doing ex vivo so that they could fit into Lenti or Retro, which have bigger payloads, or they would go into the liver with LNP, which also has a big payload. But if you want to go after all the places where AAV can go, AAV's payload is pretty small. So what Stanley did was he developed a Cas molecule that was half the size of Cas9, and then we further optimized it and made it more active. So now all of a sudden we said, okay, let's pick diseases where AAV goes and where the, where the biology is validated. And then on top of it, which diseases can we really make a difference? And it was interesting, and this sort of goes to the humility of the people on the team. We were all brainstorming together and somebody brought up fasciscapital humeral muscular dystrophy. Okay, my husband's cousin's family has FSHD, and it has been haunting me that as I saw Alan go from gait disturbances to a wheelchair to not being able to work, it was like, I work on so many rare diseases. How can I not do anything? And now all of a sudden, I had the machinery, understanding the biology of the disease, to be able to do something. So we went from picking this disease late last year to we're filing an IND next year which is remarkable. And you couldn't do it without this powerful platform. But again, now I will say another big advancement, I would say is this biology is fairly new. And part of it has to do with the collaboration between very driven patients, the clinicians who work in that space and nonprofits. I mean, it's a true case history where if those people come together, it's amazing what they can do. A lot of the biology that we're relying on, it's only been out. You know, 10, 15 years max, but it's been validated and people keep publishing on it. The clinicians really spend the time with the patient so that we have natural history. So I think all of that was really what enabled us to move forward so rapidly. Yeah. And you touched on the unmet need and having direct relationship to someone who was, who was impacted. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of patient advocacy in early stage biotechs and how folks can be thinking about how important that is and, and how best to think about that. Thank you for asking that because I've been really pleased to see how it has evolved. So when, when I started working on ALD 20 years ago, my family and I really put everything into it. And it really was not that common to find family members you know, setting up meetings with industry, with academicians, and figuring out where the missing pieces were to pull it together and make something happen. That has changed. I mean, the last 20 years, there's some wonderful stories where really because of patient advocates, things have moved forward. Newborn screening was put in place so that you could identify the patients and do something before it was too late. So really patient played. But they can do so much more. Part of it also has to do with how drug developers think about their relationship with patients. Because, you know, look, I grew up at GSK and there was always that nervousness. Is there going to be conflict if we talk to patients? And we're always nervous. But you know what? If you don't spend time really understanding the patient, you don't know what's important to them. 
like you may think that the thing they care about most is X. And it turns out that there's something else that, I don't know, they can't sleep at night. They fall all the time. They're breaking bones because they're falling. So it may be something else entirely. And that's where that relationship between the patients and the drug developers and the clinicians and everyone together can make a huge difference. I see it and I see it growing and it should only grow more. And they can also, you know, patients can also help the FDA learn about what's important to them. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, in everything we do in drug development, it's laden with risk. And, you know, I think adding the human side to why we're doing what we're doing can be so motivating and inspirational as well. I'm curious, as you think about that inherent risk, and only one out of 5,000 compounds actually make it out to market, how do you approach the emotional aspects of that risk and failure? And then how do you then communicate that to the team as well so that folks continue to remain motivated and understand the bigger picture? Another wonderful question. And I can tell you when we started working on FSHG, and as soon as we had promising in vitro data with patient-derived cells, I said to Alan, my cousin-in-law, I'm like, please, you got to talk to the team. And, you know, now the Zoom is, that's one of the beauties of that we got left with after the pandemic. Zoom just makes everybody connected. So Alan zoomed in. I didn't even realize that he had invited his wife. So we also heard from somebody who was taking care of somebody with FSHG, which is an, another mm, helpful wonderful. perspective. And you could literally hear a pin drop in my organization because he was on the, on the Zoom on the screen. And it gave such a perspective to help them. And I'll tell you how it impacted. Well, yes, they felt like there's a face there. I don't want to put something in that we don't believe is safe. But on the other hand, that need for perfection, it was like, we heard from Alan, he'd be happy if it just stopped the disease, forget fixing it, what was already damaged, if you just stopped it degenerating. And they're like, you know what, he's waiting for us, we've got to get him something. Let's not make perfection the enemy of done. And so it really helped in terms of that balance of like seeing the faces. It happens our company is sponsoring an FSHG walk and roll this coming Sunday in Palo Alto. And, you know, I said to a little company, I said, look, these are the experiences when you're out there with the patients, walking with them, seeing that, you know, they're in wheelchairs or walkers or whatever, and they just put their whole heart and soul into trying to do something. And, and in most cases, when you talk to them, it's not even about them. It's about the younger generation. It's about others. And they just give it themselves. And when you're surrounded by that, and you're a scientist that can do something to help, you're just driven to make a difference. And it really gives a balance of risk, safety, and just drive because they're waiting on us. And look, there's no perfect answer to what you asked me, but I just feel the more, I mean, we're humans. And the more we engage together, and it also permeates how I think the regulators think about, quote unquote, protecting patients. As long as you let patients know what the risks are, and it's all in the consent form and it's open, like you got to be careful to treat them like adults as well. So there's those aspects as, you know, we, we all have to come to this to the table together when there's so much at risk and there's just so many different perspectives. That's a great point, Amber. Thank you for, for sharing. I think there's lots of helpful tips in there for folks that are thinking about starting a biotech, about how you stay close to the patient, how that certainly drives many of us across the sector. Looking forward a little bit, I'd love to pick your brain about perhaps some existential threats or things that we, or challenges or opportunities that we face, perhaps specifically in in gene therapy, if anything comes to mind. Yeah, something that's 
almost always on my mind right now, and I hope I don't get too emotional about this. As I mentioned, my family was affected by ALD. We worked on a treatment starting 20 years ago, and we're thrilled when Third Rock Venture put money in. They ended up forming Bluebird Bio and took the program forward and actually got the product approved in Europe last year. I mean, we were blown away. I mean, to actually see it from, you know, beginning to end, it's approved. Now the patients are going to get it. Well, it turned out that because it is so expensive to make, Bluebird Bio had trouble negotiating reimbursement. Now, I'm not saying they couldn't have gotten there with years and money, but that still takes money and support. And they're a public company and the shareholders have to support it. So they basically pulled out of Europe, even though we had an approved product for patients. So I'm devastated that patients don't have access to it. So when you ask me where I'd like to see things go, the challenge was coming up with a treatment. I feel like we did that. Lowering the cost of goods is a different challenge. And you know, Bluebird can't do it by itself for that one product where there's aren't that many patients. It's a problem that permeates gene therapy, cost of goods. And there are people who are able to address it from a technical perspective, but it's going to take people, time, money, and also engaging with the agency in terms of how we could look at it. Because if you change how something's manufactured, you don't have to redo all your clinical trials again. And there's all rules. I'm not going to get into around bioequivalents, blah, blah, blah. But if we all work together with the goal taking these life-saving treatments and a making them in a way that it's affordable, I think that's a goal that we should be able to achieve. And again, this is where people have to come together because maybe one rare disease program can't afford it. But if you pull together across many, we could find ways to really reduce cost of goods and get the medicines to the patients. Yeah, certainly agree. And, and has an impactful effect downstream on reimbursement and cost to the patients. It's a great point, Amber. To wrap up, given the breadth and diversity in your career, I'd love if you could share with us one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, uh, knowing all that you now know. I'm still not a guru at it. I wish I learned it so many years ago. You have to meet people where they are. And what I mean by that is sometimes it was like, okay, I know where we need to get to. And I was trying to like drag everyone there. That does not work. <laughs> people are not going to follow you if they're not ready to. So you really have to engage with people where they are and really, really respect and hear what they're saying and why they are where they are. And when I say, well, I wish I was an expert at it now, like, for example, when I pitch investors, different investors are in different places. And if I am truly meeting that investor where they are, I feel really good. They're going to be excited about what we're doing. But if I just do the standard thing and they should figure out what I'm saying, it's not going to work. I mean, that's sort of an exaggerated point, but it's at all levels where you're talking to patients, developers, employees, colleagues, board members. I really wished I had been much, much more thoughtful because it was always like, oh, we got to get there. We got to get there. And I was not cognizant enough that I had to meet people where they are. And I am constantly trying to get better at it, but I just wish that somebody had, I'm sure somebody did and I just didn't hear it, <laughs> but I wish I'd done that, you know, when I started. Yeah. That's a wonderfully nuanced response, Amber, and certainly resonates with me, you know, the importance of understanding who the audience is and where they might be so that you can start to influence some change in thinking. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, Amber, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for sharing a little bit of, I'm sure, what you've learned along the way and on your new role at, at Epic Bio. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.